I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm very happy to welcome to the show and into the studio Jeremy Rogoff, who's the co-founder and CEO of KickUp. Jeremy, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. All right, first things first, I want to point our listeners to your website, and it's kickup.co. Jeremy, give us the elevator pitch for KickUp. Sure. So KickUp is an educator-founded company. I'm a former educator. Um, We're focused on helping schools and K-12 districts um, understand and improve the impact of their professional learning for teachers. And so what that means for uh, anyone who's not in the education field is that schools are spending a ton of time and money, um, up to $18,000 per teacher per year, on professional development for teachers, making teachers better. And the reason that they're doing that is because that's the most important factor to um, improve student learning. But they have little understanding of whether or not that time and money is actually leading to any type of change in the classroom. And so we help them collect the right data at the right time, um, put that all into an analytics platform, and then help them make better decisions about how to use their time and money to better support teachers and ultimately improve student outcomes. Mm -hmm. Well, before we get to the product and and you telling us how it works, tell us what we know about whether teachers can, in fact, get better. Well, I certainly think they can. Um, yeah. I wouldn't have founded this company if, yeah. if I didn't think so. And as a teacher, I, I was in the um, the Mississippi Delta. I was a, wow. the only algebra and Spanish teacher, particularly Spanish, within about a 50-mile radius of where I was teaching. And uh, I was looking desperately to find resources, tools, opportunities to collaborate with other teachers because it's really isolating being that, that individual Spanish teacher. But I found that with the drive that I had to improve and, and just having that, um, that those students come into your class every day uh, expecting a good experience and expecting to learn, um, it was incumbent upon me to actually change and get better. So mm-hmm. I absolutely think teachers can get better. Uh, you have to create the right conditions, um, the right culture, especially in that school building, to make that possible, to make learning for adults possible, to help them feel vulnerable, that they can actually ask questions and admit that they don't know something. Um, that's a lot harder sometimes for adults than for kids. Um, and so I, I do think it's possible. I think it's just the the right combination of people and, um, and opportunities to make that happen. As a teacher myself, although in a very different setting, I wonder what are the big opportunities or maybe categories of opportunities for improvement in teaching? I can imagine, well, why don't I leave it at that? What, what, where really are the big opportunities for making somebody a better teacher? I think it's being more creative about how we use their time. Mm-hmm. Um, they're spending, uh, I think it's 90 hours per year in some type of training experience. But most of the time that's in a uh, traditional workshop based experience. Mm-hmm. So they, they take them out of their classroom, uh, go to a, a place with you know uh, some coffee and, and put a speaker in front of them and expect that that's going to change teacher behavior. Mm-hmm. But what a lot of the research shows is that it's actually practice. It's mm. job embedded coaching. It's things that um, require a lot of uh, repetition between two adults and, and sharing their experience in the classroom. Um, and I think that until we find opportunities within schools to actually create that, those experiences and make them the routine part of the day, um, make lesson study routine, uh, make observing other teachers routine, you're going to see the same results. Um, but what we think is we have to create the right evidence base to say, hey, these practices, these 
um, observing other teachers, professional learning communities, these are actually making an impact mm -hmm. compared to some other interventions that are costing you a lot of time and money. Until we have that evidence base, we don't, we don't see that really changing a lot of behavior for schools. All right. Well, let's then turn to that question. I, I think there are... I, I've, I heard you mention two things. One is the kinds of activities you engage the teacher in, and the other is measuring the outcome. So take those in either order, but I'd, I'd love to know about both. That is, how does KickUp, what does KickUp do, mm -hmm. and how do you know that it works? Yeah, so we we actually don't deliver professional learning or okay. training to, to schools. Um, there's actually a huge market of both for-profit, non-profit, and in-school providers of some type of training. So mm -hmm. you can think of this as um, companies that go in and sell a curriculum, and they often provide some type of training alongside of that, or a county office that comes in and delivers professional learning to, to teachers. And so what's missing from that environment is there isn't a third party to objectively measure which of those different providers, which of those different interventions are leading to some type of change for teachers. So what we do is we actually work directly with the school district, particularly the person who's in charge of professional learning, who has that, uh, that budget, who's responsible for making sure teachers change practice. And we do a few things with them. We first understand what their goals are. What are they actually trying to improve from the professional learning that they're, that they're doing with their teachers? Then we figure out how are they actually measuring it? How are they planning on understanding whether or not there was improvement? And we work directly with them to develop instruments. And when we say instruments, usually that means surveys. So surveys from teachers, surveys from parents and students, um, surveys from their administrators and their principals and coaches. And we make sure that, that those surveys are actually asking the same types of questions so that the indicators and the outcomes that they're seeing from those questions are all giving them um, similar types of insights. And we put all that information together in a series of dashboards um, that help them make better decisions. And we, we actually have an entire team devoted to not only helping them analyze the data, but then helping them understand what are the concrete next steps that they can take to improve teacher practice the next day. And by the way, because we're working with other schools and other districts that are like them, we can draw insights and, and comparisons uh, across districts that are similar to, to those and help them figure out what is the right intervention for this teacher or for this group of teachers that's actually going to change their practice. Yeah. Well, let me ask a, a hard question. As a teacher myself, I really the only feedback we have as teachers is is effectively survey day. It's bas basically what did students think of the of the learning experience. We don't survey other stakeholders other than the participants themselves, but that's who we survey. And a frustration and an off, often raised concern is wh why do we actually care most about satisfaction, for instance, as opposed to other more tangible learning outcomes. What's your response to that? And how do you think about, is it, do you survey data because it's convenient? Um, um, or is it really the right metric? Yeah, I mean, a lot of what we do is rely upon the research that's already out there. Mm -hmm. So there's um, uh, a professor by the name of Thomas Guskey who developed a framework for evaluating professional development. And there's mm -hmm. five stages of it. And part of it does have to do with evaluating general satisfaction, mm -hmm. right? That's that's kind of the, the lowest hanging fruit, and that's what schools generally do right now. But then the question is, how do you move beyond that? And mm -hmm. how do you use survey data? So it's not just asking questions that are affective, but that are objective. To what extent did you actually implement something that you learned in a certain professional learning mm -hmm. intervention? 
Give an example of that. What are you going to do next? What are your goals associated with this objective? So what we try to do is actually make survey data a lot more meaningful. Right. Um, and you know we do we do get pushback. Well, this is survey data. This isn't student outcome data. Right. Yeah, that's right. And we're upfront about that and intentional about that because we actually think that if you ask some of the right questions at the right time, you're going to get meaningful feedback. And your teachers are the folks on the front lines whose voices need to be heard about what's working and what's not. Yeah. And we want to value that in the, the feedback mechanism that we're delivering from them back to the um, to the district. Yeah, I, I would say there's actually a, a general principle here about measurement, which is that in systems where it's very, very difficult to objectively measure the output, you often have to rely on process measures. Basically, did you do X, Y, and Z? Right. And we have a belief in a theory that if you do X, Y, and Z, we'll get the outcome we want. We can't measure the outcome, so we're just gonna measure X, Y, and Z. And, and I think that's a reasonable approach. It's one we use, for instance, in measuring innovation. We can't measure the outcome of innovation because it's really noisy, but we can say, did you talk to customers? Did you generate alternatives? Did you run prototypes and tests? So that's similar here in this case. Yeah. Right, and yeah. and in our case, you know, we we think of those as leading indicators. What right. what's suggestive of of practice changing? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, if we try to measure a student outcome against a professional learning objective, like you said, right. that's not necessarily the right uh, the right correlation to make. Yeah. Um, so for that reason, we we try to go a few steps before that and see what what actually. Um, is suggestive of, of behavior change. Yeah. Let me ask you about student outcome data. That certainly, in certainly some parts of the world, it's everything. So for instance, if you look in the Chinese educational system, student performance on their college entrance exam, everybody gets held accountable for that. Leads to wide-scale cheating, stealing of data, uh, manipulation of that system. Uh, where are we in the United States on outcomes data and how do you feel about it? Whew, that's a good question. <laughs> so I think, uh, you know, the jury is in, in many ways still out. We've we've actually seen a movement away from just relying upon standardized tests mm-hmm. as a measure of student growth or student performance, um, especially after No Child Left Behind, which um, in many ways placed a huge emphasis on teacher evaluation right. and also on student outcomes as a part of that teacher evaluation uh, pie. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that we've moved away from that to the Every Student Succeeds Act, which actually places a lot more power for, for innovation in the states, um, schools and districts and states can actually uh, have a lot more freedom in how they think about student growth and student performance. Um, so they don't necessarily just have to rely on one type of assessment. So I think what where we are, and, and I think what we believe is that what matters most is, is growth and using formative assessment measuring students on um, on a periodic basis and, and seeing how they're actually progressing is much more meaningful and valuable for that student than one summative assessment at the at the beginning and the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we still, in the United States, place way too much emphasis on that. I know when I was a teacher, as an algebra teacher, I was incentivized by my end-of-course right. state examination. Right. Um, and I worked really hard to get my students invested in that and get them excited about that. Uh, and And you could argue that even though they achieved quite highly on that test, um, maybe we didn't get to do some of the more exciting, creative things when it comes to algebra and actually investing them in a love of math and learning. Um, so I don't think we've moved too far away from that since I've left the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm I'm hoping that we can, over time, make more progress towards saying, you know, that end-of-course assessment is is not the end-all, be-all. What is is where we where we started and, and where we ended up and how we got there, the process in between. Jeremy, 
Take me back to the origin. Where did this business come from? A, a very different place than where it is now. Uh, <laughs> I So I mentioned I was an educator. I was teaching um, in, in an Arkansas classroom um, and had the uh, initial idea for KickUp, but it looked very different. Um, mm. I as You were doing Teach for America? I was doing Teach for America, yeah. um, and I was an algebra and Spanish teacher, a very unlikely combination, but because I minored in Spanish and there were no other... Uh, teachers in the in the school who had um, Spanish in their background, I was placed in that classroom. So naturally, I was always looking for additional ways to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was actually working with another Teach for America core member on a very different idea, which was how do we um, make high-performing teacher practice more accessible to teachers? How can we show them videos and examples of what this looks like? And then we went out and researched the market, and it turns out there's plenty of videos out there. Uh, there's actually too many of those videos yeah. out there in some ways. Um, and so over a period of um, uh, of about two years while I was teaching, started tinkering, tinkering around with other ideas, um, particularly around teacher collaboration, because I actually met um, an incredible algebra teacher in New York City uh, who just transformed the way I thought about my classroom. And I thought, well, how can I make this this experience of collaborating with another teacher um, happen for more teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, the, when I left the classroom in 2014, that was the idea. And I met up with my now co-founder, Victoria, who I went to middle school and high school with. Oh. Um, and she was also a teacher. She had left the classroom a year earlier and shared with her some of my frustrations with professional learning and my initial idea, this, this way of making uh, collaboration more possible among teachers. And so we came up with a platform that allowed, it was essentially match.com, but mm-hmm. for teacher support. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's match teachers with skills and with needs to each other and then incentivize them to, to do that by giving them professional development credit, um, which is mandated by the state. And we developed a product. We raised some initial capital. We, um, we even acquired some customers. We, we, we got some districts and some states to, to pay us some uh, for an upfront pilot. And we uh, gained entry into an accelerator program called Imagine K-12, which is now part of Y Combinator um, on the West Coast. And we got out there, we launched our platform with a lot of excitement, uh, but nobody used it. And teachers were not interacting on the platform like we wanted them to. Um, And we had basically a decision to make, which was we could continue really trying to understand why teachers weren't collaborating, or we could step back and figure out, you know, what is the problem that we're really trying to solve? Mm -hmm. And that's when uh, we did that. And I ultimately decided to um, interview as many educators as possible, but, but specific, a specific type of educator. And that's not the classroom teacher, but the, the people who are supporting teachers, mm-hmm. instructional coaches, principals, district administrators, and spent uh, a good six weeks in interviewing about 200 people and understanding what were some of the dynamics in professional learning. And what continued to come up was this need for better evaluation, better measurement, and then using that data to actually make teachers better as opposed to just using it for reporting. Um, and that was kind of the initial germ of our of our current iteration of KickUp. And we've been at it for about a year since um, since making that that pretty significant pivot. Great. I want to I take you back to your experience as a teacher. I mean, Teach for America, the basic premise is that you're going to do something else afterwards. Um, what was that experience like? And had you gone into it thinking you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Or where, what were you thinking in terms of career trajectory when you took the leap to do Teach for America? Yeah. 
Definitely not an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, I had some entrepreneurial tendencies as a teacher. I um, worked with a few educators mm-hmm. to um, bring students to New York and develop some new disciplinary policies within our district. Um, but it, entrepreneurship was not my my end goal. I was actually quite happy as a um, thinking about staying within schools, going potentially into school leadership. Um, and I went on to go teach at a um, a charter school in D.C. Actually, after Teach for America and. Um, it was a, a KIPP school, so very different environment than than my district. In, uh, Remind me what KIPP means. KIPP uh, is a high performing charter okay. uh, organization throughout the country. Um, it used to stand for the Knowledge is Power program, uh-huh. but it has now just become KIPP. Okay, um, and they're they're well known for getting uh, getting good outcomes from mm-hmm. students, but they're also controversial because of. Um, some of the practices that uh, teachers might exhibit or schools might exhibit around discipline, mm. around um, homework, around longer days. Um, so, so went on to go teach there. But really, I was just trying to better understand how to teach in different environments. Um, and the the bug for KickUp and, and this entrepreneurship, it kind of just developed as I was teaching and finding a lot of um, excitement in just developing some of these new models and new ideas. But I was never planning to start a company. Mm-hmm. Um, I gave myself about three months after I left the classroom to try to put something together and, and get some people to, to care about uh, the idea. And it's just kind of continued to progress ever yeah. since. What, what you, you described this pivot as going from, as you described it, the match.com for teachers that would, me- that would connect either people who could share experiences or perhaps a mentor and a mentee uh, via a matching platform. And then you pivoted, as you as you characterized it, to focusing on administrators who care about teacher performance. What would be the general insight there? Was that, is it that you have to focus on the person who makes the buying decision? Is that, would that be the general insight for others, do you think? I think that the step before that was you have to figure out a, what problem you're solving, mm-hmm. and is that problem, does it fall into the urgent and important category? Mm-hmm. For teachers, professional learning will always be important but not urgent. Uh-huh. And that was a big insight that we got from other entrepreneurs when we yeah. talked to them. And so then if we really do want to work on the professional learning problem, who's who's really cares about that and for whom is it urgent? And that was the, the administrator, the coach, the principal. Yeah. Um, and by the way, they happen to uh, have the budget and, and yeah. be the purchasers of the the. Product. Yeah, so say a little bit about the sales cycle. Is it do they literally have budget that can be used directly that's earmarked for this category? And and if so, what else are they spending on? How do you how do you compete against sure. their other uses? Yeah. Yeah, they do. Um there's there's federal money and there's state money. Title mm-hmm. II is the big uh federal money mm-hmm. um for uh, teacher development, teacher preparation. Um it's how a lot of uh, graduate schools of education uh, are funded and as as well as district in-service professional development. But what's challenging for us is that we are um, we're not like their typical vendor when it comes to that that budget line item. When they're when they're thinking about purchasing money from uh, professional development, they're thinking about content. They're thinking right. about a service provider who's going to come in and train their teachers. And what we're essentially saying is, we can help you assess who and which of those service providers is having an impact uh, on your teachers. So that's our that's our main competition is actually the 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 vendors who are providing the professional right. development. But can they use those funds for your services without special approval? They can. They can. Yes. Okay, so that's nice. So they have a budget they have a budgeted category. They are spending these funds. And so what's your sales pitch to them? It's a good so our our sales pitch depends upon, you know, who the who the buyer is within yeah. the district. Um, if it's the director of professional development, it's often 
it's a process pitch. So it's, you know, you are already collecting survey data from teachers. What are you doing with that information? How much time is it taking you to collect that data? And then how are you analyzing it? And how are you reporting it back to mm-hmm. your board? And often within that process, there are there are pain points for them. Um, and so we can help them automate a lot of that process. We can help them bring all the data together and help it tell a story um, and make them honestly look like superstars. They're, yeah. they're, they now have a, a, a system and a tool that can help them communicate the value of their services for teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a superintendent or somebody within the district cabinet, we go back to to dollars and cents. How much are you spending on on professional development and on on people and on performance? And what's that giving you? And oftentimes that's when we have a really interesting conversation around measurement mm-hmm. and, and how are they knowing whether or not those those dollars for professional development, especially when you look at a school district budget and so much of it is is already locked up in other funds that mm-hmm. you can't really be creative with. But your Title II funding and your 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 professional development funding you can be a little bit more creative with. So we talk about that and how they can use their money to to improve performance. Yeah, how how, how much of their money do they have to use? What is, what does this cost for us? Yeah, I mean, what what do, what do, what do we pay for kickup? Let's say we want to install it in a in a school. So we we actually just transitioned our pricing model. Mm-hmm. We're we're still very early yeah, sure. stage. Yeah. So we um we were charging per teacher. Mm-hmm. Now we're charging per student, depending upon the size of the district. So. Mm-hmm. Um, for a really large district, it could be as low as a dollar per student, mm-hmm. um, and a smaller district, about three dollars per student, and it's it's on a sliding scale. Per what time period? Per year. Per year. Yeah. Okay. So one to three dollars per student uh, per per year, and and how much customization is required? Is it is it is it, is there a big service element to the product? There is, and that's that's yeah. part of our value proposition. Um, we have a, a client success team whose job it is to make sure that, um, you know, the. The biggest objection that uh, that some of our prospects have is, well, we could do this with SurveyMonkey, and we could do this ourselves. And what we want to show to them is actually we have expertise in-house that is, is going to prove that this is not something that you can do with SurveyMonkey. And so we lead with that, actually. We mm-hmm. don't lead with the technology. We lead with the, the client success team and, and understanding their needs and understanding the goals that they're trying to track. Mm-hmm. So there is a high degree of consultation on the back end, our, you know, our technology and our engineers are working on automating a lot of that customization. So it's less of a cost for us, but um, just as good, if not better, of an experience for um, for districts. Um, how, how's it going? Give us a sense of the traction. It's going well. Uh, we are, let's see, we're now serving uh, over a thousand schools. Wow. Um, and we are primarily working at the district level, but also working, partnering with some of those vendors because they also need to be able to assess their performance mm-hmm. and provide um, provide evidence back to their clients. So um, working with hundreds of their schools as well. Um, we are, uh, we raised our initial round of funding in 2016. Um, we are a uh, an amazing group of engineers and educators. Uh, there's about 10 of us on the team right now, but we're continuing to grow. Um, and we just have, uh, I think, really exciting plans ahead for both product and for for growth um, on the team. I want you to think back to teaching algebra in the Mississippi Delta. Uh, which is harder, being an algebra teacher or being a startup CEO? think being an algebra teacher yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot harder yeah uh, there's there's a lot of challenges with being a, a ceo but i i feel uh incredibly privileged um and i mean that in multiple ways yeah. um, i think yeah. i was privileged to be able to take three months to to try to start something and i've been privileged to have an amazing team and um and and build a network of people that can help 
Um, and when, when you're open about what you need help with, with our advisors, I think they've been incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're an algebra teacher, you don't always have that. And that was the initial reason yeah. why, yeah. why, uh, why I tried to start kick All right. I, I, I can't let you go without asking a, a policy question. We're right in the middle of watching a change in the Department of Education. Um, they're with, with Betsy DeVos, there will almost certainly be increased emphasis on charter schools. Uh, what, what's your take on, on, on the future for education in, in the U.S. and what the real opportunities are? Yeah. I think the real opportunities are in, in states um, yeah. that have an opportunity to, to innovate and to, to change how we think about measurement and around student performance and teacher performance. Um, you know, my big concern with, with DeVos and with, um, with her confirmation is, A, that she, was, she didn't have any experience in the, mm-hmm. in the um, education in, within a K-12 school. Um, and I also think that, uh, you know, the, the debate around charter schools can get very politicized, but the most important thing with whether you're a charter or you're a district is how are you measuring yourself, mm-hmm. um, and, and the accountability of your schools. And so, um, I think we need to move away from this, this fine line between charters and districts and talk about what is, what does it mean to have a good school? Mm-hmm. Um, and then what does it mean to hold them accountable? And I think that can happen, um, now with, with states actually being able to innovate around, their own policies with a little bit more freedom to do that. Um, I don't see that changing, especially over the next four years with with our current administration. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to wrap up our interview. Thanks so much for coming into the studio. It makes a huge difference. Thank you for having me. All right. For more information about KickUp, you can go to kickup.co. That's K-I-C-K-U-P dot C-O. And you can also find their blog called The Cycle. I'm Carl Ulrich. Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud 